Let's open the scriptures together to Luke chapter 19. Read a short portion of this chapter, the first ten verses. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Thus far we read in the Holy Scriptures. The basis of this passage and the entirety of the Word of God. We hear the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism now in Lord's Day 33. Beginning with question 88. Of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts. Of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ, and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith, are performed according to the law of God and to his glory, and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. Beloved in the Lord, last time we heard a sermon on the Catechism, We envisioned the three sections of our Heidelberg Catechism as three rooms 
in a big house. The first section of the catechism explains what the Bible has to say about our sins and miseries. And that's the the small room, the, the first room that we enter into. But quickly from there we move into the large and spacious living room that is the second section of the catechism entitled Our Deliverance. And there the catechism explains to us how we are saved from that sin and misery that we learned about. We're saved through Jesus Christ and His work. But now on the far side of that second room there is another door leading into a third room And the sign above the door to that third room is gratitude. We move from deliverance to what deliverance brings out in us. Being saved from our sins and miseries, the powerful grace of God works in us a new life. A new life of thankfulness. And that's what the third section of the catechism is all about. The third section of the catechism is going to explain to us the Christian life. And so from here all the way to Lord's Day 52... We're going to be reminded and deepened in our understanding and further equipped and prompted in our practice of the godly, grateful life of a Christian. Lord's Day 32 was the door, as it were, explaining to us that the whole of the Christian life grows out of the saving work of Christ. That's where we properly place good works, not as part of what gets us saved, but The way we live as a saved person. Now, the third section is going to focus on the two main parts of the Christian's life. The Christian is a servant of God who obeys the law of God and worships God. And so the third section explains to us the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. Obedience and prayer. The two fundamental parts of the grateful Christian Life as servants of God, redeemed servants of God, we serve Him by obeying and by praying. But before the Catechism gets into the specifics of the Christian life, Lord's Day 33 is going to focus our attention on one more fundamental truth of the Bible. The truth of conversion. Conversion. A couple of Sundays ago in the morning we heard a word of God which called us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the form, the shape of the Christian life. Not stagnancy, not a standstill, but spiritual growth and maturity as the good work which God has begun in us is carried out by the operation of the Spirit unto perfection. And an important part of that growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that continual growth of the Christian life, is this conversion. Conversion from sin and conversion unto God. The Christian is someone who has been converted, radically turned around, turned from darkness to light, from sin to God. But that turning is more than just a one-time thing. That turning is to become the regular pattern, the habit of the Christian life. The Christian is someone who is converted and yet is always converting more and more. That's what we're going to look at this morning with the help of Lord's Day 33. It's a rich 
topic that the Bible teaches us about, very applicable to every day of our lives, a way to think about each day, is that each day that God gives me in this world is a day for me to strive more and more to turn to Him. A day for more and more conversion unto my God. It's a deep topic. Conversion involves the mortification of the old man and the quickening of the new man. And we're going to look at what those biblical terms mean this morning and something of how we engage in this activity of mortifying the old and quickening the new. We want to grasp the biblical concept of conversion, but not grasp it merely in an abstract way. We want to grasp this concept so that it may grasp us. Conversion is not simply something interesting for our intellect to explore, but it is a calling for us to heed with all our heart and live out in all of our life. Conversion. Turned but turning more to God. Dead to sin, yet called to kill it more and more. Alive unto God, but called each day to die more to myself that I may live all the more. Converted, yet converting. That's our theme. Converted, yet converting. First, we're going to look at the concept, the biblical concept of conversion more generally. That it's turning. We're going to see that the Christian is someone who is turned, yet continually turning. Then in the second and third point, we're going to look more closely at the two aspects or the two sides of that turning. We're going to see that the Christian is dead to sin and yet called to mortify his or her sin more and more each day. And then lastly, we'll see that the Christian is someone who is alive unto God, yet also called more and more each day to quicken that new life. The Christian, saved by Christ, becomes a different person. He is turned around. She is turned around. And yet his or her life is a life of continual turning. That's what conversion is. That's what the word convert means. It means a U-turn, a reversal, a turnaround. Now, to understand what this looks like in the life of a person, to take an abstract concept and make it very concrete, we turn to Luke 19. The familiar story that we all know. You children here know the story of Zacchaeus, don't you? You know and you've sung the song about Zacchaeus. Well, that story about Zacchaeus One of the truths that it sets before us and lets us see in a very concrete way is conversion. What conversion looks like in the life of a real person. Zacchaeus is a man who was turned around. By the grace of God, his life took a U-turn. Zacchaeus... For a long time, lived a certain way, and his life had a very definite goal and direction. The text says he was very rich. And he was very rich because he was a chief 
tax collector stationed in Jericho, a city which was near a major trade route with many merchants traveling to and from the city. And so there was much revenue to be collected on the goods that were brought past and through Jericho. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He oversaw the work of many tax collectors who were in the employ of the Roman government. Now we all know how the Jews looked at tax collectors back in that day. They were the scum of the earth. And they earned that reputation because many of them were notorious thieves. Extortioners. And Zacchaeus was no exception. The reason he was so rich is that he did well for himself plying his disreputable trade as a tax collector. He was a crook. Involved in all sorts of shady business. Skimming extra money off of the revenues he collected from merchants. Skimming Money for himself off the taxes he collected from the citizens in Jericho and the nearby villages. He even got a cut from the revenue that his underlings earned as they collected taxes. And as an agent of the Roman state, he was in a certain way untouchable. Everyone knew what he was doing, but no one could do anything about it. Rome turned a blind eye to the disreputable business of its tax collectors as long as Caesar got his taxes. In Zacchaeus, we see a man living a life of sin. Living a life for self. Not caring about his neighbor. He was going up in the world. He was going places in the world. He had risen to a chief tax collector and he climbed up there on the shoulders and on the heads of those beneath him. And getting up here, he used every advantage of being up here further to oppress those beneath him, those under his power, in order to enrich himself. He used everything for his own advantage at the expense and at the exploitation of his neighbor. And we might say, wow, here is a person of rare depravity, but we should stop there. Yes, depravity, but not rare depravity, because Zacchaeus, by nature, is no different than you and me. We have Zacchaeus' nature. It's the natural bent of our human nature. Our inclination is to hate God and hate our neighbor. Our inclination is to exploit the neighbor, to use him, to use everything that I have, my position, my power, whatever advantage I have for me at the expense of others. We are all thieves, covetous, greedy by nature. We share the sinful nature that Zacchaeus had. Zacchaeus simply shows us who we all are by nature. Jesus describes Zacchaeus in this passage as the lost. That's humankind. We're lost apart from the grace of God. Lost, wandering down our own self-serving, sinful, selfish paths. Worshipping whatever idol we might desire most. In Zacchaeus' case, he was an ardent worshipper of mammon. Lost, this man was, and heading for ruin, for destruction, for eternal perdition. 
And the wonder of the story of Zacchaeus is that there is this marvelous turnaround. There is this marvelous reversal, this wonderful U-turn in Zacchaeus' life. A U-turn, a turnaround that Zacchaeus never would have come to on his own, never would have decided to do one day. Yes, maybe Maybe eventually Zacchaeus' crimes would catch up with him and he'd feel ashamed in the earthly sense and he'd decide to clean up his life a little bit to save face for his own benefit perhaps. But that's not a true turnaround. That's still self-serving. The kind of turnaround that we see in this passage is a turnaround that only comes about when Christ enters a man's life. And that's what happens here. Jesus comes to Jericho because Jesus had a lost person to save in Jericho. Jesus came for Zacchaeus. And Jesus walked down that thoroughfare through Jericho to the base of that sycamore tree because Jesus knew who would be in that sycamore tree. Jesus called. And the powerful voice of the Good Shepherd penetrated into the dark recesses of that dead heart and drew Zacchaeus to him. And Jesus goes home with Zacchaeus. And though the text doesn't tell us what happened when Jesus abode at Zacchaeus' house, we know very well what happened. Jesus talked with him. Jesus taught him. Jesus opened up the gospel to him. And the powerful gracious words of Jesus seized this man's heart and grace worked a transformation. So stark it was as the resurrection of a dead man. And Zacchaeus' whole life is turned around This day salvation came to this house. For as much as he also was a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus says. The last verses of the story show what a different person Zacchaeus became. He was a thief, a crook, an extortioner. The exploiter of his neighbors. And he becomes the most generous man of charity in the city. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. The heap of wealth that Zacchaeus had gained by sin, he now gives away. For the good of his neighbors. There's a certain despising of that ill-gotten gain that we see. Zacchaeus throws down the idol of mammon. He casts it out of his life. There is a decisive break with his sinful past. And a change. A new way of life. That he enters into with zeal and with joy and with fervency. The riches that he worshipped. He generously gives to the poor. He sees the sin he had committed against his neighbors. The hurt he had inflicted upon those under him. And so he says, anyone, anyone that I've robbed or falsely accused, 
I make restitution. Here's how I show that I'm a changed man and and show the, the genuineness of my repentance. I do all that I can. I go above and beyond to mend as much as I can the damage that I have caused. I will restore to them not just what I took, not just double what I took, but fourfold. A complete turnaround. That's what conversion looks like. That's what the catechism is talking about. Don't let the technical theological terms relegate conversion into this abstract realm of concepts that we just think about. This is what it looks like in real life, Zacchaeus. We see all of the elements of true conversion here in the story of Zacchaeus, don't we? We see a sorrowful and a joyful turning, the things that we're going to look at in the second and third point. Though Luke 19 doesn't directly say Zacchaeus was sorry, you see the sorrow in his actions. What motivates restoring fourfold to those that he had robbed? And there were a bunch of people. It's not just one or two, but tons of people. What what motivates that? Behind it is a sincere sorrow, a, a true recognition of his sin. He sees it for what it is. He stops excusing it. He stops justifying it. He stops hardening his heart to the reality of his sin. And he beholds it for what it is in the light of God's word. He sees what he's done to his neighbor. He sees how he's provoked God's just displeasure. And he grieves for it. And that sorrow then moves him to hate his former life. His former way of life. And that hatred fuels a change. There's sincere sorrow here. But there's also sincere joy. And that's a beautiful thing about the story. The text highlights the joy of Zacchaeus. When he comes down from the sycamore tree. The first foretaste of Jesus' mercy for him. Brings such joy. Verse 6 says that Zacchaeus received Christ joyfully. And that word joyfully carries on through the rest of the story so that everything we see Zacchaeus do is characterized by that newfound joy when he stands up and says, Lord, behold, I give the half of my goods to the poor. Zacchaeus was not doing that in a grudging way out of a sense of obligation. Oh, I have to do this. It came from the heart. He did it joyfully. Zacchaeus had never been truly joyful before. Oh, he thought he was as he glutted himself with the riches that he stole from his neighbors. But he wasn't ever truly happy. He was empty. And God had awakened in his heart a sense of that emptiness. When he heard about this Jesus, and that's what drove him up into the tree. He had to see this Jesus. And now... Having his heart seized by the grace of God and his life turned around. For the first time, he's truly happy. Truly joyful. He bids his wealth farewell. Happily. 
seeing it go to the poor. Delighting to see the amazed facial expressions and the joy in the faces of his neighbors that he used to hurt as he restored to them fourfold what he had taken. Sorrow for sin, but a new joy. That's conversion. We see in the second place that Zacchaeus' conversion is, it's not just the turning around of part of his life, but it's the turning around of his entire person. And that's what conversion is. Conversion is not surface level behavior modification. It's not training yourself to just behave a different way in a certain circumstance so that you don't have to feel bad about yourself or so that you can avoid consequences or so that you can look good. The world does that. You see that all the time in the world. Someone goes deep in a pattern of sinful behavior and they get caught and they have to pay the penalty or they make a wreck of their life and their family. And then they work hard to change that pattern of behavior. But without the grace of God, it's just surface level. And it's still self-serving. That's not what we have here in Zacchaeus. Changing his behavior on the outside so that he would look like a good citizen. So that he could avoid consequences. No, his heart changes. And the change in his heart turns his whole person around. The old Zacchaeus dies. And there's a new Zacchaeus. Who is the workmanship of grace. That's conversion. Now the last thing to look at in terms of conversion generally. Is to answer the question when. When does conversion take place? And there's a distinction that is helpful to make here. A distinction between a a decisive first time conversion. And the conversion that the Lord's Day especially focuses on. Which is a daily and ongoing conversion. We see both here in the story of Zacchaeus. Before Christ came into Zacchaeus' life. He was living for self, worshipping the idol of mammon, exploiting his neighbors. But Christ powerfully seized his heart and turned him around. And there we see a decisive turning from unbelief to faith. From the path of wickedness to the path of righteousness. There is a decisive break with his sin. He is converted. But now what follows that decisive turning from sin and turning unto God is a new lifestyle, a new way of life. And that's the other, the other sense in which we use the, the, the term conversion. A daily turning, an increasing turning, more and more. After Jesus came and saved Zacchaeus, And stayed at Zacchaeus' house for a little while. Jesus eventually left and continued on his journey. Leaving Zacchaeus in Jericho as a tax collector. A radically changed tax collector. 
But a man still living in this world, still living with his sinful flesh, still holding that position. And we could be sure that Zacchaeus still felt temptation to go back to the old ways. It's not as if he never felt greedy, never coveted again. He still had that sinful flesh. He had been radically turned around, but now what must follow is a changed life of continually turning away from sin, continually resisting temptation, continually putting down the desires of the sinful flesh, and turning to God. And by the grace of God, that was the new changed life that Zacchaeus lived. He must have continued as a tax collector there in Jericho, but a very different man, an honest one. And so conversion, in one sense, it's a decisive turnaround. That's what happens when people are converted on the mission field. There's this radical turnaround of their life. That's what can happen in a believer's life when he's fallen deeply into a pattern of sin. You think of David and his sin committed against Bathsheba and Uriah. There he walked in sin and by the word of God brought through the prophet Nathan, there was a radical turning around of his life. But conversion is more than that, and conversion must be more than that in our lives. Conversion is an everyday thing. Every day, the sinful nature is inclined to hate God and neighbor. Every day, the sinful nature is inclined to live for self. Every day, your sinful nature and mine is inclined to use the neighbor for my advantage instead of loving him and giving of myself for him. And every day, the calling of the Christian, the pattern of our life, is to be turning from that old man and his deeds and his desires and turning towards God and delighting in God And in God's commandments. We are a people. Turned. Yet called to keep on turning. Because the devil. Sinful flesh. The wicked world. The threefold enemy of the Christian. Is hard at work to turn us back around. That's a way to think about the spiritual warfare of a Christian. The spiritual warfare of the Christian is to keep on turning towards God and keeping ourselves moving in this direction and resisting the temptation of the devil and the old man who wants to pull us back this way and turn us back to sin and turn us back to the desires of the sinful nature and the old ways. Turned. Yet daily we must be turning. More and more. And that's what the rest of the sermon is going to be about. We've looked at the concept of conversion in a general way. We've made it concrete by observing that conversion in the life of Zacchaeus. Now let's get to the two sides of daily conversion. What really is it to turn from sin and turn to God each day? It's the mortification of the old man and the quickening of the new man as the catechism explains. And so now in the second point, let's focus on the mortification of the old man. As a turned Christian, you are dead in this sense. You are dead 
to sin. Your old man has been crucified with Christ. And what that means is, the dominion that your old man used to hold over you has been broken. And you are now freed from the bondage of sin. The believer is dead to sin. The believer still has his old man. The old man is a biblical term referring to our sinful nature. It's the corrupt principle of sin that still dwells in us. It's the sinfulness that cleaves to us and strives to regain dominion over our minds, our souls, our wills, our emotions, our actions. And while the old man can be difficult to describe in words, we all know what he is because we feel him inside of us. We wrestle with him every day. Those impulses, those desires, those thoughts that are out of harmony with the word of God. That's the old man. Now we mustn't think of the old man this way, that it's the separate person inside of me, as if the Christian has two personalities. That's not the case. The old man is me according to my old nature. The old man is me in my sin. And my calling, according to the word of God then, is to mortify, to put to death the old man. That's what mortify means. It means to put to death, to extinguish, to get rid of, to destroy. The idea of mortifying the old man is not that I inflict bodily harm on myself. The old man is the spiritual principle of sin in me. And so how do you kill a spiritual principle inside of you? You kill it by denying it, by starving it of what it wants, by suppressing it, by turning away from it. That's the killing of the old man. It's denying self Turning from sin, resisting temptation. And mortifying is is an appropriate word to describe this spiritual activity because it is painful. Our sinful nature wants sin. Wants the counterfeit pleasures of sin. It's not easy. It's hard to deny self. The mortification of the old man is painful. It's a painful killing of the old self, but it's not a harmful killing. It's a healthy killing of the old self. Denying, suppressing, starving sin and the sinful nature. That's the mortification of the old man. How precisely does the Christian engage in this mortification of the old man in his or her daily life. That's where the catechism is very, is very helpful. With a single sentence in answer 89, we're given a very concise yet complete explanation of how we kill sin in our lives. You kill it in the first place with sorrow. It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins. That's the first 
crushing blow that we are to lay upon our sinful nature in the daily battle of conversion. Sorrow for sin. And here we must remember the important distinction of 2 Corinthians 7 between the godly sorrow of the Christian and the worldly sorrow of the unbeliever. We must not have the worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is sorrow that I got caught. Sorrow merely over the unpleasant consequences of my sin. Godly sorrow is what is described here in the catechism. I see sin the way God sees it. I sorrow because my sin violates God's perfect law, aggrieves and offends the most holy God, and that's what pierces my heart. And in conjunction with that, if my sin is against my neighbor, I see the harm, the hurt that my sin has brought to my neighbor, and out of love for my neighbor, that grieves me. My preoccupation is not with how my sin affects me, though that may be painful, and there may be painful consequences that I grieve over in a certain sense, but my focus is on God and my neighbor. That's sincere sorrow. And that sincere sorrow then leads to action. It's not sitting and having a spiritual pity party for myself, but it leads to taking concrete steps. To remove that sin from my life. To change. And if I have hurt my neighbor. To restore as Zacchaeus did. And that's why the catechism goes on. To explain. And more and more hate. And flee. From my sin. Here's the one. Good. Kind of hatred. It's a hatred that is actually a facet of love for God and love for my neighbor. Hatred of sin. A despising of sin. So that whereas before I loved that sin, I gave myself to that sin, I relished in its counterfeit pleasure, now seeing it for what it is, seeing it in light of God's word, seeing it in light of what it has done, offending God and harming my neighbor, I now despise it, it becomes repulsive to me. And whereas before I clutched it to my bosom, now I expel it from me. That's the godly Hatred of sin, which is a facet of love for God and the neighbor. And so you see, sincere sorrow changes our attitude towards sin, breeds that holy hatred against our sin, and that sincere sorrow and that holy hatred together, they are essential components of the engine of spiritual change that moves the vehicle of conversion forward. When I see my sin for what it is and I hate it because of what it is, I'm not going to sit and do nothing. I'm going to take action and in love for the captain of my salvation, depending upon his strength and upon his word and even seeking the aid of fellow soldiers in the church of Christ, I'm going to launch a military campaign against the sin in my life. And put it to death. 
And that military campaign will take different shapes depending on the sin, depending on the circumstances, depending on various factors. The one that the the catechism mentions is flee from them. And that fits with the whole idea of turning. Conversion is turning away from sin, fleeing the sin in which I used to walk. We see Zacchaeus doing that, fleeing from the theft that he once engaged in, fleeing from the dishonesty, turning from it and turning to the opposite. Flight from sin includes fleeing from temptation, circumstances, persons that unduly tempt me to walk in my old ways. I am to flee, flee from them. Flight is not spiritual cowardice, but flight is one of the most prudent tactical maneuvers a Christian can make in his spiritual warfare. Flight from sin arises from a thorough knowledge of my own weakness and the power of my enemy, and therefore I'm going to flee. When I have to face that sin, I fight it with the sword of the Spirit, resisting the devil. Flight. Fight and forsake. Return. Leave it. Get rid of it. Mortify it. That's conversion. Now let's make the mortification of the old man very concrete and very personal for us this morning. It's easy to let ourselves be unaffected by this word if we leave everything in the abstract, but... We saw a conversion is very concrete. Look at what it looks like in the life of Zacchaeus. And now ask yourself, honestly, what does it look like in your life? What does conversion, what does the mortification of the old man need to look like in your life right now? Don't turn your eyes away from the face of your old man. You know what he looks like. Look him in the eye. And don't coddle him. Kill him. That angry face that you so often show to your spouse or to your children. That's your old man. Look him in the eye and kill him. That thinking that I'm justified in my anger, my irritability, I had reasons to act how I did. That's your old man lying to your face. Don't. Let yourself be deceived. Silence the old man and kill him. Stop calling sin what it's not. Those excuses, those minimizations, that's your old man talking. Mortify him. Be converted. Be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. The screen in the dark corner in the lonely hour and the parade of images across the screen that your old man hungers for that's the face of your old man kill him and if necessary instead of putting your nose in the screen put the hammer through the screen so that you can flee from that temptation The smug satisfaction that I feel in my heart when I look down upon my neighbor and think myself better than them, even if if I don't really acknowledge that that's what I'm doing, that pride, 
That's your old man. Kill him. Let us not harden our hearts against this word this morning, nor turn our eyes from our old man and pretend he's not there, or pretend he's not as bad as he is, but look him in the face, shine the word of God upon him this morning, and slay him with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. If there are any here who are walking impenitently in sin, look your old man in the face, and mortify him. And if you're too weak to resist temptation of yourself, get help. Seek help from a loved one, a fellow Christian that you trust, who can help hold you accountable, who can help you in that battle. Don't deceive yourself thinking you can hang on to the old man and live peaceably with him. If you don't kill him, he will kill you. He promises happiness, he promises pleasure, but he will drag you into perdition. Kill him. Turn to Christ, turn to Christ, believe in Christ, flee to Christ, trust in Christ, draw your power from Christ. Christ is the victory over the old man. We don't have the strength to do this of ourselves. We can't conquer our own sins of ourselves. Look at Zacchaeus. We're all like Zacchaeus. Without Christ, we would continually wander down that path of sin to our own ruin. We would continue to coddle and indulge the old man. But Christ brings change, powerful change. And if you believe in Him, He's already worked that change in you. He's decisively turned you around. And that means there's no snare of sin that can keep you forever. There are no jaws of sin clamped too tight. They can all be broken by the power of Christ. For the believer, it is never hopeless. Whatever your battle against sin is, whatever sin you are struggling with, Christ has the power to free you. Turn to Him. Rest in Him. Depend upon His grace. Cry out to Him. The Son of God can, does, set you free. For the guilt, Go to Christ too. In Christ is the power to overcome. And in Christ is the covering of his shed blood upon the cross of Calvary. Which he shed for all of his elect children. And if you believe in Christ. You believe because you are one of his children. And that blood is for you believer. It covers your sins. There is forgiveness. Plenteous redemption with Christ. Flee to Him. Find your refuge in Him. And you will be empowered by Him to mortify the old man victoriously. Finally, conversion is also the quickening of the new man. The Christian is one who is alive, yet quickening. The Christian is dead from this perspective that our old man has been crucified with Christ. The dominion of the old man has been broken so that we are no longer slaves to sin. We're dead to sin, but as Romans 6 says, we are alive unto righteousness. We are alive unto God, meaning 
We have been liberated from the bondage of sin and enabled and empowered by the grace of God to walk in newness of life. We are alive. And that's where the concept of the new man enters the picture. Another biblical term. And the new man simply refers to me as I am in Christ. The new man is me as a new creature in Christ. The workmanship of God's grace. It's the new heart given to me when I am spiritually reborn by the grace of God. It is me as a branch engrafted into Christ the true vine. It is me as the temple of the Holy Spirit indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. The new man is the principle of new life. The principle of the life of Christ implanted in me. And so you see the Christian, there, there's the, the Christian's daily battle. There are these two principles at war in us. There's the old man, the principle of sin, my old corrupt nature. And there's the new life of Christ. And these two are contrary. These two are at war. But thanks be to God, it is the new man who rises daily victorious And when God's good work in us is complete, it is the new man who will be the complete victor and the old man will pass away. Your new man was born when you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. When the life of Christ is planted in your heart. With that new life of Christ comes the gift of faith. And with faith... God infuses new qualities into our wills. So that whereas before we lusted after sin. And threw ourselves headlong into it. Now with the new man in Christ our desires change. There is a love for God. There is a delight in the things that God delights in. There is a desire to serve him. To know him. To worship him. To love him. And to love the neighbor. That's the new man. And we're called to quicken him. Meaning to strengthen him. To feed him. To enliven him. Mortifying the old man takes place by denying the old man what he lusts after. Starving him. Suppressing him. Turning from him. But the flip side of conversion is quickening the new man. Feeding that new life of Christ. Feeding it with the gospel. Feeding it with the word of God. Feeding him with Christian fellowship. Feeding him in the worship of the church. Feeding him. Strengthening him. Cultivating that new life. Here's where the catechism's description of quickening of the new man is very helpful as well. You'll notice how mortification begins with sincere sorrow. Quickening begins with sincere joy. And that's very important to notice. The Christian life is not a drab, sorrowful life. Sometimes people mischaracterize it that way. A life of repentance is a life of walking around, slumped over, burdened, sad. No! Yes, there is sincere sorrow for sin, but the overarching, the predominant, dominant emotion and feeling of the Christian life is pure joy. 
The joy of being freed by Christ. The joy of being redeemed by Christ. The joy of being covered in the blood of Christ. The joy of being an heir of the kingdom of heaven. The joy of having the privilege of now living a new life. Joy, not sorrow, is on the foreground in Zacchaeus' story. And that's so beautiful. Because joy can be and ought to be and will be on the foreground of your Christian story as well, beloved. Joy. Joy in God through Christ who changes hearts, turns life around, breaks the shackles of sin, rips the snares open, fills our lives with all manner of good, His blessings. It's peace. You look back at Zacchaeus and you see what the quickening of the new man is. Out of that joy of heart in God through Christ, Zacchaeus with love and delight began to live according to the will of God in all good works. And he loved doing it. Giving to the poor. Restoring to those he had defrauded. With joy he engaged in those things. That's how the new man is strengthened. That's how the new man is fed. Delighting in what delights God. And walking in that way. And those renewed affections have an expulsive power. When you feast your soul upon Christ and all of the good that comes to us in Christ, the allure of sin begins to fade. That's not to say that we don't never face temptation again. We do. We have to wrestle with temptation our whole life long. But the best defense against the old man is strengthening the new man. The best way to starve the old man is to feast the new man. The best way to put out sin from your life is to fill your life with Christ. And to fill your life with joyful service to Him. and Joyful worship and joyful Christian fellowship. When all the room in your heart and life is taken up by Christ, it's much harder For the old man to find space. Put down a root in the soil of your heart. And So as with mortification, make quickening personal and concrete this morning. Instead of that angry face, put on a joyful face. Instead of being irritated with your spouse or your children when you don't get your way, Joyfully serve them. Give of yourself. And though it is counterintuitive, though it is contrary to our human reasoning, it is the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ that it is far more blessed to give than to receive. And when we walk in that way, we find how true those words are. I'm happiest. I'm most joyful when, like Zacchaeus, I'm not taking, but I'm giving. I've been glued to that screen filling my soul with unclean things. Amputate that screen from your life. 
Whether it's getting rid of it, whether it's throwing it in the garbage can, whether it's disabling it in some way, put it away. And instead, fill your heart with the good things of God. And the free, the reformation of your desires, the reformation of your attitudes, the reformation of your affections will be beautiful and sweet. Cultivate that new man. Walk in newness of life. For the glory of God. That's the aim. Conversion delights God. Conversion glorifies God. Because conversion shows what God can do. What God can do with a Zacchaeus. What God can do with you and me. He can take what was lost. And save it. He can take. Someone who is dead. Make them alive. He can take us. Turn us around. And make us. Beautiful pieces. Of the workmanship of his grace. Turn and keep on turning. Day by day. His glory. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for this instruction in our calling to conversion. Grant us daily more and more to be turned from sin and turned unto Thee to kill the old man and his deeds and to put on and enliven the new man. Renew our affections, Father, so that what Thou dost delight in we might also find our joy in those things. Pardon graciously our sins. Empower us to live in newness of life. This we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.